Good afternoon, everyone. I hope everyone is having a productive and enjoyable conference thus far. Welcome to the panel on Housing, Health, and Equity, Government as a Site for Intersectional Justice, sponsored by the Applied Religious Studies Committee of the American Academy of Religion. My name is Sara Kamali. I've, I earned my PhD in Religious Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. My own scholarship and activism centers on intersectional equity. I specifically examine how institutions oppress and minoritize people, as well as maintain systems of privilege for a select few with the aim of advancing justice for all. I've also been a member of the Applied Religious Studies Committee for the past two years, and am on the uh, steering committee for the Comparative Approaches to Religious Violence Unit at the AAR. To outline today's conversation, after my opening statements and my introduction, of the esteemed panelists. Each of them will present their initial remarks, and then they will be joined in conversation with Dr. Sean Landris. Towards the end of the session, we will engage in a Q&A with the audience. So for those of you who would like to participate, please, please speak into the microphones at the front of the room. I would, oh, yes, right here. The one microphone at the front of the room. I would like to point out that today's session is being recorded for posterity and will be uploaded to the AAR SoundCloud channel and podcast. So please pass the word along for those who were interested in attending but couldn't. As you may note from the committee's name, the purpose of the Applied Religious Studies Committee is to engage with the many career pathways for scholars of religion within the halls of academe and also beyond. This means not only supporting graduate students in particular in what is a challenging job market with dwindling tenure track jobs, but also in providing them opportunities to discuss career choices beyond teaching and research. Ultimately, the ARSC seeks to explore ways that faculty institutions and the AAR itself can enhance support of religious studies scholars looking into and pursuing non-faculty careers. Indeed, religious studies itself continues to be an important academic field of inquiry despite the self-reported declining levels of religi religiosity and religious attendance in the United States and around the world. In 1963, Thomas Clark, a former Associate Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, wrote in the majority opinion of Abingdon v. Shemp, it might well be said that one's education is not complete without the study of comparative religion or the history of religion. This st still holds true today. Certainly, as the most recent presidential administration has taught us, is that religion is not passe, but is as dynamic as perhaps it ever was. The American political landscape is shaped by religion in ways that don't immediately register as faith-based communities are motivated in part by their religious identities to take action in the world. Those actions can have positive effects, such as social outreach or providing a sense of community, or negative ones, including intolerance of others. The principal concern of religious studies, then, is to examine how different religious groups imagine the world differently which ultimately affects how they respond to contemporary concerns. Local policymakers are increasingly working closely with faith-based community partners and negotiating with multi-religious and multi-racial organizing coalitions for progress on thorny issues from climate change and economic inequality to housing, homelessness, and racial equity. It is these partnerships that have proved to be critical engines of progress in the face of increasing policy paralysis in Washington. Given the relevance of religion and religious studies to today's political climate and American government, today's distinguished panelists will be discussing the viability of government as a career path to religious studies students and contingent faculty. 
Each of these political leaders have religious studies connections in the background and have, had, and have made substantial contributions to the public good beyond the academy. They will also be discussing how their religious studies backgrounds have influenced their political lives, ethical considerations, and public policy work. Now on to the formal introductions of our distinguished panelists. Congresswoman Lois Capps retired in 2016 after serving nine terms in the U.S. House of Representatives. She earned her M.A. in religion from Yale University while working as head nurse at Yale New Haven Hospital and later an M.A. in education from UC Santa Barbara. The founder of the Santa Barbara County Teenage Pregnancy and Parenting Project and former director of the Parent and Child Enrichment Center, Representative Capps brought her health equity concerns to her service in Congress as well as her commitment to fighting climate change and advancing LGBT equality. Her memoirs, Keeping Faith in Congress, Why Persistence, Compassion, and Teamwork Will Save Our Democracy, were published in 2018. Mayor Sadaf Jaffer is a scholar of South Asian, Islamic, and Gender Studies, and since January 2019, as mayor of Montgomery Township, New Jersey, the nation's first female Muslim mayor, first female Pakistani-American mayor, and first female South Asian American mayor. As an academic, she aims to understand modern Muslim societies by looking beyond self-consciously religious circles to shapers of film and literary culture. As a civic leader, she uses her training as an educator to engage her community in understanding and appreciating the deep ethnic and religious diversity that has come to characterize it. Los Angeles County Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas, one of America's most powerful local elected officials, has led the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Greater Los Angeles and served as a Los Angeles County City Council member. Currently in his third term as a leader of the nation's largest county, his district alone has a population larger than 14 U.S. states. Supervisor Ridley Thomas received his PhD in social ethics from USC and has brought his commitment to social criticism and social change to his focus on, homeless, on the homelessness crisis, health services, and biomedical research, open data, and racial equity. So please join me in welcoming Congressperson Lois Capps. Okay. So, yes, just for those of you listening in the future in SoundCloud, we are going to wait for Supervisor Willie Thomas to, uh, to join us. In radio, silence is, is not welcome, but I suppose on SoundCloud, it'll have to do. So the question was, what is the population of the, of the county, L.A. County? It is 10 million. Okay. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Supervisor Ridley Thomas. Well, thanks very much. I'm pleased to be here. And Thank you very much, Dr. Kamali, for that stellar introduction that I heard every word of. <laughs> um, uh, 
this presentation is on the ethics of traffic. Uh, and I could, uh, I can s spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, on that subject today. Uh, may I just uh, try to blaze through these remarks as quickly as I can and and thank uh, Mayor Jaffer and Congresswoman Caps for um, uh, aiding me in my hour of need here. Uh, and to Dr. Landris, uh, thank you for pushing your way through. 30 years ago, I uh, was deeply engaged in the work of social ethics from an academic perspective and uh, the focus I had was on social criticism and social change. Uh, most of us know what uh, that largely entails, a subset of moral philosophy that uh, launched in the 19th century and tried to look at the ethical dimensions of social science and public policy, and I've been trying to work that out over the span of my public uh, career, and so ever since I was elected to public office, I've been acting as a social ethicist and a servant leader, trying to interject notions of norms and warrants, values, uh, claims and rights, and pursuit of the common good. That's essentially what I've done and what I do. Uh, how many people here still see themselves as social ethicists by profession or otherwise, formally? And to the extent that that is the case, uh, uh, you know what we try to do. We try to look at public policy. We look at social systems. We try to understand more importantly, analyze and prescribe uh, what ought to be done in the face of systems that demean or diminish the quality of life of anyone. And so ethicists tend to want to know what to do and how it ought to be done. Uh, theologians, specifically systematicians, want to know how to think or believe. and somehow we need to learn how to integrate those two. And we know that there are distinctions of consequence. Uh, the individual that may have had most impact, uh, some of you will appreciate on the field of social ethics in terms of those who uh, came through that tradition over the last half century probably was Martin Luther King Jr. himself more dissertations written on Dr. King than any other uh, figure that you can point to. Uh, he said it uh, himself, that he, had he known what he was doing when he left Morehouse and went through Crozier and then ultimately to Boston, if he had uh, known more, he would have probably focused on uh, social ethics rather than systematics. And, uh, um, uh, that gave some of us 
an opportunity to pick up where he thought he was leaving off, at least in terms of his academic work. Let me say then how we think of this. Uh, the focus of my work has been to critique the status quo and to push for systemic social change. Now, if you're in the public sector and hold an elected office, that typically is going to mean that you're pushing for reform. That is essentially the language of change and of progress in the context of governance. One of the areas that we are spending the most time on is on the question of homelessness. Can't get around it even if we wanted to. May I share with you just a little data? Because good social ethicists uh, rely on data. In the county of Los Angeles, as prosperous as it is, and the state of California as wealthy as California is, and um, all of what that looks like in the context of a nation that is um, premier in so many ways, we have what I want to describe as a moral crisis that will not abate unless we bring the analytical tools to bear in which we've been trained. And so I believe that this is a civic legacy uh, that will be front and center in the eyes of generations to come. And over a half million people in this country experience homelessness every single night. California uh, happens to be the epicenter of that with 130, um, meaning almost a quarter of the nation's homeless population. L.A. County, uh, roughly 40% of the state's homeless population. And um, every single night, 58,000 people. Uh, let me say it in these terms, 58,000 reasons compel us to do more on the issue of, the, of alleviating and ultimately eradicating uh, this set of circumstances, which I want to say uh, denies, robs people of their dignity and their worth. And where they find themselves with regularity is not meant for human habitation. Um, Los Angeles, the skylines uh, that provides stark illustration in terms of income and wealth gap in our region. Um, Los Angeles, um, on the one hand, extraordinary wealth, on the other hand, hand, abject poverty. Los Angeles, uh, an example of what discordance can be evidence, evident in our space, and yet we have a need to address it. Uh, this conference, this topic of intersectionality is one that gets our attention. Uh, you know the name of Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. She uh, came forward with the notion of intersectionality and was looking at race, class, gender, and other characteristics that intersect one another and overlap. Uh, a legal scholar by training at UCLA and at Columbia, she's at both institutions and um, uh, 
a very fine scholar with a lot of respect for her. Uh, and then there's Anjum Marie Hancock O'Faro, a political scientist uh, at the University of Southern California, both of whom uh, worked through this discussion in terms of an intersectional approach to research on subjects like welfare reform, criminal justice reform, with, uh, in their cases, a gender analysis. Homelessness as a policy uh, challenges a site of intersectionality, a point of conversion for a range of fields, religion, politics, sociology, medicine, economic, and dare I say, ethics. So the solutions to homelessness uh, will inevitably draw on a range of disciplines and practices. And from a social, social ethics framework, policymakers, theologians, doctors, economists uh, must be willing to step forth and collaborate and ask uh, fundamental questions, questions that go to the question of the issue of uh, what is right, what is ethically co correct. Uh, some say they'll have to ask the question, who has the right to land, labor, and lodging? Uh, who has the right to a roof, a right to a door? But the very language of rights is the domain of ethical discourse. And we ask the more fundamental question of whose responsibility is it to square up? with these rights. Well, uh, if we think about the allocation of resources, um, just for a moment when I became a supervisor some uh, decade ago, a decade or so ago, the funds for homelessness were evenly, uh, uh, equally divided by five supervisorial districts. And these are essentially political jurisdictions. You made reference to the fact there are roughly 10 million people in the county of Los Angeles and um, um, two million people represented by one supervisor. Uh, something uh, a bit laissez-faire about dividing resources equally without acknowledgement of decades for uh, the neglect and disinvestment in some of those regions. And so if you treat everything equally, I can assure you you're exacerbating uh, the circumstances of those who have left least to which to appeal. John Rawls um, had a notion in mind in the theory of justice, an alternative funding methodology that uplifts equity, in my mind, would limit the influence of luck on residents in terms of their well-being and effectively displace the norm that affixes the quality of life to birthplace to social status and to family history. You know enough now to know that if you want to make a statement about the predictability of life expectancy, uh, just map the zip code. Uh, we know a whole lot more than we knew before. We know it now. And then in February um, of 2014, I just thought I'd author a motion that would for the first time allocate resources for homelessness based on geographic need. We just decided to step forward in terms of divide by five and say that that was not working well for the least of these in our environment. 
And then I followed up with another motion that said, let's do some street outreach teams to animate and activate what we hope to do. And we followed that with a major effort in 2016, all on the fundamental principle that equity and a, a full redistribution of resources might be uh, an aspiration that was worth our pursuing. I know that this is the case. Public policy, social ethicists have to become more conversant in terms of the issues related to data. Uh, moral discourse uh, has its place and it ought to inform what we do, but if we don't have data, then we are shortchanging ourselves in terms of the policy prescriptions uh, that would be appropriate. I often say don't get mad, get data, and let that do what it does. And so the Public Policy Institute of California says that homelessness is the number one issue across the state of California. And you can't get around that. And then I did a poll of focus groups of various ethnicities that reinforced that. Um, that's just recently. We came back uh, to do more. The LA Times and the Los Angeles Business Council even said it's more intense than the previous polls to which I made reference. And they keep coming. Now the social ethicist has to be informed by data, uh, real life circumstances. And I have to tell you that if we are constructing policy, we need to be in real time. In other words, if we appeal to a prophetic tradition in any shape, form, or fashion, if you are in any way inclined to take note of biblical ethics, it is the urgency of now and so then. If we want to um, honor the dignity and worth of every person, it would seem to me that we want to make sure that they are properly and adequately housed with the resources that they deserve. Um, but when we learn that that approach is too costly and taking too long and therefore in the realities that we experience, if we find more people on the streets of our respective communities. It seems that we have to have a mid-course correction and those who wanted to say no shelters, no bridge homes and the like, mostly and almost exclusively affordable housing, uh, then I want to say to you that this then is the point at which our values ought to kick in and we have to abandon ideology and face the reality that more people are becoming homeless every day of the week when we find uh, that in Los Angeles, two to three people every day are, are dying directly attributable to the fact that they are homeless, according to our county coroner, coroner and medical examiner. It then says to us that we need to take stock of what we are contending with and make the appropriate adjustments. Um, 
now the data is strong in terms of what's happening there uh, with the population of people who are dying on our streets, and I want to make it clear that that's twice the number of people who die as a result of homicide. Uh, the average death age of that death was 51 among the homeless population versus uh, 73 among the general population, a 20-year gap. If you're homeless, you're going to die two decades earlier. Um, I think we have to be fact-driven. Well, this is a crisis. No two ways about it. The governor of the state of um, California, Gavin Newsom, appreciates it to be and says, look, I'm going to pull together this uh, governing council on homelessness. That's advisory to me. Three things you need to do. End street homelessness, build more housing, and get more people into treatment. Those suffering from addiction and or substance uh, use warrants are consideration. Well, a lot can be done on the prevention front. A lot is being done. Uh, unfortunately, what we have to come to grips with is uh, we underestimated the force of the economic inequities among us. And that has made for a most untenable, that is a tenuous set of circumstances for those who already find themselves on the edge. Homelessness is what? A fundamental expression, a manifestation of impoverishment as it presents or represents itself in our time. Um, when I first became an elected official nearly 30 years ago, we did not have this level of crisis. It is simply beyond what is acceptable by any standard of measurement. Therefore, we have an obligation to address it and not continue to uh, discuss it in terms of a crisis and then not act like it is a crisis. Uh, those of you who are the Greek scholars in the room uh, know that crisis has uh, implications for a point at which a decision has to be made. We have to step forward, act decisively, make the decisions that need to be made, um, draw deep, and face the crossroads that requires meaningful innovation. I uh, know that uh, this requires a comprehensive crisis response. Leaders don't yell crisis without essentially building a path to address that crisis. Uh, that's what public service is about, and those who are trained as ethicists uh, need then to help the public sector uh, find uh, the language that inspires people, that challenges people, that uh, lifts people to a higher level of wanting to do right by those who are yet homeless. Uh, there's a little college on a red clay hill in Atlanta. I had a president who was an extraordinary individual, uh, one of the first African Americans to attain the PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, 
and did that with the kind of presence and prominence. So Benjamin Elijah Mays, um, Martin Luther King's mentor, sociologist of religion, and it would take someone who would be a Baptist preacher to reach out and appreciate someone who didn't have God as an objective referent in his life. And he turned back a full century and leaned into Louis Untermeyer. And in chapel regularly, afford those students an opportunity to benefit from poetry. God, though this life is but wraith, although we know not what we use, although we grope with little faith, give me the heart to fight and lose. Ever insurgent, let me be, make me more daring than devout. From sleek contentment, keep me free and fill me with buoyant doubt. Open my eyes to visions girt with beauty and with wonder lit, but always let me see the dirt and all the spawn and die in it. Open my ears to music. Let me thrill with springs, first flutes and drums, but never let me dare forget the bitter ballads of the slums. He concludes by saying, from compromise and things half done, keep me stern and stubborn pride. And when at last the fight is won, God keep me still unsatisfied. And that's essentially what the social ethicist has to be about in his or her journey, unsatisfied, fundamentally committed to the transformation of society, being renewed by those values and those strengths uh, that can make a difference in the quality of life of every creature created in the image and likeness of God. Thank you very kindly. Thank you, Supervisor Riley Thomas, for those uh, insightful and eloquent words. Um, now, please join me in welcoming Congressperson Lois Capps. Thank you uh, for your introduction, Dr. Sara Kamali. And um, I know it's an honor to have the cleanup guy, Sean Landers, is going to focus our conversation together after. The fact that both of them come from my community, uh, the University of California in Santa Barbara, um, is not lost on me. And you came in just the nick of time, Supervisor Mark Ridley Thomas. Um, it, to set us off on a courageous call, and we'll be thinking on and hopefully responding in more than just nice thoughts 
to what you're talking about. It's the epitome here in this beautiful and horrendous city, both at the same time. But it is the fingers of homelessness stretch out across our nation in small and medium and large sized communities. Uh, so I'm honored to respond to you and also make my own remarks. And I know I'm going to be followed by a mayor, um, Sadaf Jaffer, a township in New Jersey, across the country, but with many uh, important similarities. I'm going to talk about my story a little bit to get us going. Because who was I in Congress? And two of your colleagues, Supervisor, uh, Hilda Solis, my comadre in Congress, and also Janice Hahn. We belong to a prayer circle together. So um, you've got a good supervisory board there, here in this community, to deal with the issues that you discuss. I ran for the United States Congress in 1998, a long time ago. It was a special election following the sudden death of my husband, uh, Fort Walter Capps. Walter had been, elect, been elected to Congress not even two years before, following a 30-year career as a, um, a, a religious studies professor at the university we referred to, the United, at the uh, University of California in Santa Barbara. He was himself a longtime member of this organization, the American Academy of Religion, and a colleague in his department with one we're going to memorialize tomorrow, Wade Clark Rue. In fact, neighbors of ours in our community. The truth is that I ran for the vacant seat in Congress because no one else stepped up or would step up. Walter had barely won himself on his second try for a seat long held by the other party. He served less than a year. And I had campaigned by his side after my career as a public health nurse in our school district. So I was very familiar with knocking on doors and meeting with people on their terms. And in that special election, I won. Barely, but I won. And along the campaign trail, I was often met with uh, comments and even editorials like, you're running for Congress? Why are you running for? In those days, it was, you're just a woman, and you're just a nurse. Well, that stiffened my spine a bit. And I learned to remind folks that they, no doubt, care a great deal about their health care and also the education and the health of their children. That's the world in which I spent many years of my life in our community involved with both education and health care policy and its implementation. So with your permission, I want to bring up two topics for our discussion today to add to the mix. The first is that basic tenant called representational democracy, as outlined in our US Constitution. Yes, it's true, as was said in our introduction to this session, we do have a policy paralysis in Washington, D.C. at the moment, but hopefully it is temporary. Surely it's not due to a structural flaw in our Constitution. And such a paralysis 
can always be addressed by the next election, which some of us wish to do in 2020. Indeed, <clears throat> the real genius of our democracy is outlined in the Constitution, which we all studied in eighth grade civics or whenever we did U.S. history and civics in high school. We have the judicial branch, we have the administrative branch, and we have that legislative branch. The legislature is often unappreciated, especially in the House of Representatives, where individual constituents and neighborhoods can actually interact with their particular representative, who then becomes charged to go back to Washington, D.C., and take their hopes and dreams and their needs and hash it out with his or her colleagues in the House of Representatives, the People's House, it's called. And as each state has two senators, remember this fact, and now, though, in the House of Representatives, it's based on population. So we have a distinct community to um, bring into the fold, as you, if you wish. So the duty of each of the 435 House members where I served with Hilda and Janice and uh, many others is to bring, was to bring the hopes and dreams, as I mentioned, of our constituents to the Capitol and to help create progress. That word is referred to in our description of today in the journal, American Academy of Religion program, progress on the thorny issues from climate change and economic inequality to housing, homelessness, and racial inequality. And it's been eloquently uh, featured in our supervisor's remarks about this apex of what homelessness means in our world today. During my time in Congress, there were some of us who are, were also asked to share the how-tos of our way of government with emerging democracies around the world. And I, so I was appointed by our then speaker to a bipartisan team of members of the House, who, and we were called the House Democracy Partnership. We would travel to countries such as Macedonia, Nigeria, Peru, Timor-Leste, I had to look that one up on the map, and many others where dictators had been overthrown and parliaments were being developed. It's hard to know how to really be a representative, representative government. We're still working on it too. And I, to these new friends we made across the world, I would say, you know, in, we in the United States have the world's oldest democracy. That means that we've made more mistakes than anyone else. And the genius, another genius of democracy, is that we can correct our mistakes. We can learn from them, and we can make the corrective actions. Hopefully that's something we're engaged in about this thorny issue of people without places to call home. I'm convinced that even though there may be policy paralysis currently in Washington, D.C., the responsibility outlined in the Constitution and the possibility for corrective action is as close as the next election and our opportunity and responsibility to vote. We can never take that for granted. But we do, so many of us in our country. 
There is a definite role for appropriate guidance and influence in all of these matters by faith-based communities. This can happen locally through communication as constituents with, indi with our individual representatives, office visits, letters and emails, and local, sometimes local demonstrations are also effective means. National faith-based organizations and coalitions can and do certainly influence policy by joining forces in a non-sectarian way to lobby members of Congress in their offices and to participate in congressional hearings regarding aspects of concern in the area of human rights. I do admit that biases exist in Congress, as in the wider community, regarding the role that religion and faith-based communities should or do play in their deliberations. I'm sure similar bias exists by some in faith-based communities regarding the appropriate role they ought to play in local, regional, and national government. The relationship between church and state has never been clear-cut or easy. And the AAR can and does play an important role. The separation between church and state, which we affirm, is easier said than done. The standard that religion or faith has no relationship to government is just as unrealistic and unwise as to believe that one's personal sectarian beliefs must hold sway. This is an ongoing discussion in our society. Perhaps we'll carry on that discussion this afternoon. The cynical attitude many have regarding the federal government expressed in shrugging one's shoulders or not voting is the worst response of all. An abdication of responsibility and handing over power to absolutist black and white responses that many are eager to put forth. Now the second topic I want to address for our discussion today is the Affordable Care Act, or as it was known, Obamacare. Here in California, it has been implemented from the very beginning, and we know it as Covered California. I was a member of a major committee in the House of Representatives where we debated this legislation in a very bipartisan way for over a year, hammered it out, and then voted on it with a very partisan, one-sided vote. This process, messy as it is, seems to be how democracies often work. As someone remarked once, it's like sausage. You don't want to watch it being made. You just want to enjoy the result. Because the Affordable Care Act was designed to be implemented state by state, its progress has been very uneven. And of course, the legislation is not perfect. No law ever is. That, in fact, is another genius of democracy. It's always a work in progress and needs to be improved on a continuous basis. But cutting the number of uninsured in California following implementation, as we have done, is surely a measure of some progress. And during our current presidential campaign, we've all noticed that debates about access and affordability of health care seem to be hot topics of the day. And so the discussion continues. With respect to topics suggested for our discussion, I've long recognized the strong connection between health issues and climate change 
as well as homelessness and inequality. They're all interrelated. I worked on legislation in Congress to promote positive ways that we can adapt to and mitigate the health effects of climate change, for example. My profession of nursing has a strong role to play. And as a final note uh, to my remarks, retiring from Congress in 2016 has meant for me coming full circle. I've returned to my community full time and focused on an effort locally we're calling, for lack of a better term at the moment, the Lois and Walter Capps Project. And its purpose is to bring people together for conversation. For example, over a potluck supper block party, taking over a downtown street. We call it the common table. Just spreading it out and inviting folks to come and engage in conversation with a stranger. Or we have a coffee with a black guy, or a coffee with a muslima, or a street art fair. We've done all of these things in the hope of bringing community together. So I'll close with this thought. As he campaigned for Congress many, many years ago, my husband Walter Capps was fond of repeating this phrase that I'll close with, which became his slogan or mantra. He would say, democracy is, after all, born and reborn in conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Cong Congressperson Caps, for those very hopeful, hopeful remarks. And last but certainly not least, I would like to welcome Mayor Sadaf Jaffer uh, to the podium. Good afternoon, everyone. It's truly a pleasure to be part of this distinguished panel to discuss the intersection of two very important parts of my life, namely scholarship and politics. First, let me share a bit of my story. Growing up in Chicago as part of a Shia Muslim family and community, my religious upbringing helped me think deeply about issues of injustice in the world and committing myself to be someone who would try to make positive change. In the Shia Muslim tradition, much of our moral education comes from recounting the martyrdom of the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, Imam Hussein, along with his family. This archetype of injustice and intercommunal strife left a deep impression on me. I always wanted to be on the side of those fighting against the oppressors. My family was relatively well informed about politics. We listened to NPR on the radio, and my dad used to hold mock presidential debates between myself and my younger brother as a way to entertain himself. So I'm lucky also that my parents took me on many travels, including to visit family in Pakistan and Yemen. These experiences taught me that life could be very different than my experience growing up in the United States. Having this sort of a perspective is a strength that immigrant communities often bring to broader American society. I thought I wanted to go into a career in diplomacy, and indeed did intern at the State Department and with the Marine Corps during and after college. Yet my courses on Islamic studies during my undergraduate program at Georgetown School of Foreign Service piqued my interest in the breadth of materials and subjectivities in Muslim societies. In the immediate post-9-11 years, 
I was drawn to the power of primary sources to dispel stereotypes and fixed narratives about Muslim societies. I cannot overstate the importance of my undergraduate faculty member, mentors at Georgetown who provided me with the support and encouragement that I needed. And being in California, as I'm very happy to be at this time of year, I also have to thank the UCLA summer programs for undergraduate research where I learned the nuts and bolts of a first generation graduate student. With the support of my faculty mentors, I moved to India for two years to study Urdu on a Berkeley Urdu language fellowship. I then pursued a PhD in the Indo-Muslim Culture Program of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University. Currently, as a postdoctoral researcher at Princeton University, I teach and conduct research in Islamic, South Asian, and Asian American studies. My current book project, Secularism and Sexuality in Indian Muslim Thought, Ismachukthai's Urdu Literary Progressivism, examines an Urdu writer and Indian Muslim cultural critic named Ismat Chukhtai and her formation of what I term an Indo-Muslim secular through Urdu literature and Bombay cinema from the 1940s to the 1980s. As one of the most prominent Indian Muslim writers of her generation, Chukhtai reached a broad audience across South Asia and beyond. Her writing pr provides a significant and unexplored perspective on the relationship between Islam sexuality, and South Asian secularism. And just as an aside of a connection between my scholarship and my political work, Isma Chukthai is very well known for being tried for obscenity in 1946 for a short story called The Haf that had a sexual relationship between two women. And if you can think of a woman writing this in 1946 anywhere in the world, actually it was published in 1942, but I always remind myself that if she could explore these topics at that time under threat of being tried for obscenity, then I really shouldn't be scared of whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. Despite my early interest in public service, electoral politics hadn't really been on my radar beyond campaigning for President Obama uh, in 2008 and 2012. Yet towards the end of my PhD program, I started to get the sense that people like myself, who believed in diplomacy rather than war, placed a priority on human rights, and didn't paint entire nations and religions as enemies, needed to be political decision makers. This is particularly important for those scholars who work on Islam because of the skewed understanding of Islam that guides certain policies towards Muslim communities. I watch, as many do with unease, as Arabic terms like Sharia take up a life of their own as a boogeyman in contemporary American discourses, which are then turned on individual Muslims and communities. So as I was thinking about this, one of my practices is no matter what my crazy idea is, I just start talking about it with people. You know, as, as they were asking me, well, you're heading, heading towards the end of your PhD, what are you gonna do? I'm thinking about running for office, which really threw people off. But a friend of mine told me about the Emerge program which is for women from the Democratic Party who are interested in running for office. And it was just starting in New Jersey at that time. And I participated as a part of the inaugural class of 2014. I credit my eMERGE training for giving me the confidence, knowledge, and network that made running for office possible. With the polarization of the Trump campaign and administration, I felt I had to run when the mayor of my town reacted to the Muslim ban by saying, just think about Montgomery. Don't worry about anything outside Montgomery. 
With regard to affordable housing, my predecessors also often discussed it as something that our town needed to be protected from. During campaign season, my opponent produced flyers stating that my ideas were dangerous and extreme, which is clearly a dog whistle to my background. Despite the attacks, I was elected to my town's local government, the Township Committee, in 2017. In 2018, my party won two more seats and took over the majority. I was sworn in as mayor in January of that year, of this year. And actually, just a few weeks ago, we took over the other seats. So we have completely flipped our town um, in the matter of three years. Part of my reason for pursuing this opportunity was that I wanted people in my circles, whether they are other scholars, women, Muslims, or South Asians, to know that running for office is an option open to them. I certainly had never known anyone personally who had run for office, and I wanted to be that example and say, there's, there's nothing stopping you. Uh, and when I won my election, I was interviewed by a student at the Princeton student newspaper, and she asked me, you know, as a woman of color in academia and politics, you know, those are two kind of seem like tough, tough fields to be in. And I said that in some ways, I think politics is actually easier to break into, because if you have the votes, you'll win. It's not this opaque sort of process and system where you don't really know uh, where you might stand. I also want to highlight, and this is the reason why I mentioned them, that in both my academic and scholarly experiences, formal training and networking programs and mentorship programs were essential. And research shows this consistently for minoritized groups, that in order for them to break into these fields where they haven't been able to be before, they haven't had the experience, we need more of these formal training and mentorship and networking programs. And I really applaud um, this session as a way of introducing these ideas to other scholars. I know that some in these, this room might work at such programs, and thank you for the interventions that you're making. For my part, I've worked with a group of women in New Jersey to establish a nonprofit called ISAW, Inspiring South Asian American Women, to get more South Asian American women involved and interested in, in public service. This doesn't mean there aren't challenges. Though many people point to my example as a first Muslim woman mayor as one of hope about opportunities in our political system for people from diverse backgrounds, I've also been harassed by people who hate and fear Muslims. Fear and derision of Islam punctuates the hateful messages that I've personally received, like one that warns my suburban constituents that, quote, Sharia law will be arriving faster than you think, end quote. Another message takes a violent turn wishing me death and claiming that Muslims, quote, need to be removed from the planet by any means necessary, end quote. As we've seen with the murders of three Muslim students in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and the attack on a mosque in Christchurch, Christchurch New Zealand, fear and misinformation are radicalizing people to hate Islam to the point of violence. There is no doubt that the past few years have been difficult for immigrant and Muslim communities in the United States. One of the things that I would like you all to consider is that many of us, including other scholars, tend to be very focused on national and international issues, and then we neglect the local. I would ha ask that we change that. Our communities can only be strengthened from the ground up. 
People often ask me if my academic research has an impact on my government service. In a general sense, having a background in research makes me more likely to provide evidence-based solutions for my community. But I also have examples where my research on Islam and Muslim communities has been directly relevant. During the first few months I served on the Township Committee, there was an anti-Muslim bias crime where pork was left on a Muslim family's car. The response of the mayor at the time was initially weak. He said, well, you can't pick stupid, but unless it happens again, we don't really know the motivation of the people who did this. I insisted that the crime be taken seriously and provided research on how pork is used to target Muslims and how Islamophobia is a type of racism. I also started a discussion group called Montgomery Mosaic that is affiliated with the National Not In Our Town movement. We meet monthly to discuss topics like anti-black racism and anti-Latinx violence, as well as having events like intercultural holiday parties. We've also made sure to host events at all of the various important community organizations in town. The first two were held at a local synagogue, the second two at a Dutch Reformed church, and then, and then the next two at a Catholic church. We also hosted an interfaith prayer service and iftar at one of the churches this past Ramadan, which saw over 150 attendees. It is my hope that these efforts, informed by my religious studies background, will help be a step in healing some of the fraying social fabric that we're seeing. I'd like to close with a poem by the Kashmiri-American poet Aga Shahid Ali that motivates me in my political and scholarly work. And I, and I think bringing literature more into the public sphere is also a service that those of us who have a background in the humanities can do because it gives people pause to reflect on what's happening rather than being going so quickly. And we inaugurated an affordable housing project in our township and I read a poem about you know, the concept of home and the developer said they'd never had anyone refer to any poetry in such a context before, but I think it's important to do that because then it's not just so much the nitty gritty, but why is it that we're doing this? So in that uh, vein, this is a poem entitled Farewell by the Kashmiri American poet Aga Shahid Ali. At a certain point, I lost track of you. They make a desolation and call it peace. When you left, even the stones were buried. The defenseless would have no weapons. When the ibex rubs itself against the rocks, who collects its fallen fleece from the slopes? O oh, weaver who seems perfectly vanished, who weighs the hairs on the jeweler's balance? They make a desolation and call it peace. Who is the guardian tonight of the gates of paradise? My memory is again in the way of your history. Army convoys all night like desert caravans. In the smoking oil of dimmed headlights, time dissolved, all winter its crushed fennel. We can't ask them, are you done with the world? In the lake, the arms of temples and mosques are locked in each other's reflections. Have you soaked saffron to pour on them when they are found, like this centuries later in this country I've stitched in your shadow? In this country, we step out with doors in our arms. Children run out with windows in their arms. You, you drag it behind you in lit corridors. If the switch is pulled, you will be torn from everything. At a certain point, I lost track of you. You needed me. You needed to perfect me. In your absence, you polished me into the enemy. Your history gets in the way of my memory. I am everything you lost, you can't forgive me. I am everything you lost, your perfect enemy. Your memory gets in the way of my memory. I am being rowed through paradise in a river of hell. Exquisite ghosts, it is night. 
The paddle is a heart. It breaks the porcelain waves. It is still night. The paddle is, the paddle is a lotus. I am rowed as it withers toward the breeze, which is soft as if it had pity on me. If only somehow you could have been mine, what wouldn't have happened in the world? I'm everything you lost. You won't forgive me. My memory keeps getting in the way of your history. There's nothing to forgive. You can't forgive me. I hid the pain even from myself. I revealed my pain only to myself. There is everything to forgive. You can't forgive me. If only somehow you could have been mine, what would have not been possible in the world? And to me, this symbolizes so many of the conflicts we see of history and memory and conflicting memories and conflicting histories. And, and we need the backgrounds that all of us bring to solve these issues. And I will close with my belief that if we work to bridge the distances of prejudice, anything is possible in this world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mayor Jaffet, for those uh, beautiful, compelling, and timely remarks. Thank you. Thank you also for sharing that poem. Um, as the panelists, uh, this distinguished panelists, come up to the front of the room, um, they will be joined in conversation with Dr. Sean Landris. So everybody would like to take a seat. Dr. Sean Landris earned his doctorate in religious studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara, under the late Wade Clark Roof. His current research interests include religion and charitable giving, civic leadership, and public sector innovation. Dr. Landris is in his third term as chair of the Los Angeles County Equality and Productivity Commission and is also vice chair of the City of Santa Monica Planning Commission. Bless you. He is a former program unit chair and member of the AAR Program Committee and is rotating off of the Applied Religious Studies Committee at the end of this year. So um, I'd like to welcome Dr. Sean Landris and also another round of applause for um, everybody's comments. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you, Sarah. It's a real privilege um, for this panel to take place at the AAR, and I know that um, we have a hearty group here, and we'll be hearing from many, well, I know that many, many more people will be downloading this on SoundCloud for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them is that, uh, as, as Sarah mentioned, and she and I serve on the Applied Religious Studies Committee together, um, moving from the academic track to other tracks is increasingly a practice in today's world. And I think it's incredibly valuable that that's happening. Um, I want to acknowledge um, that, for example, Supervisor Ridley Thomas's Homelessness Fellow is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School and has brought her moral lens to the work of his office. And I, I think that's only for the good. I think it's only for the good that we bring those um, dimensions to the work that happens in government. Unlike these folks who've served in elected office, I'm, I'm a volunteer, I'm an appointee, um, but so much of what they've raised has influenced my own um, journey in uh, both academia and religious studies, and I think to bring some of their comments together as we move into questions, um, I'm just Remembering my teacher, Walter Capps, um, I was his last graduate student, um, and uh, we spent a lot of time together uh, in the months before he was elected, and we studied the work of Václav Havel together, 
And of course, Havel was someone who um, spoke to the very core issues that Supervisor Ridley Thomas raised in terms of the role of a social ethicist in raising a mirror to society and asking the question of what does it mean to live in truth? What does it mean to stand for the progress of history against those who would, who would stop it, who would freeze it? Um, it, it, raises a, it raises a profound moral mirror to the question of those who would say, not in my backyard. Um, and to think then of this question of what it means to be in conversation, which, which, of course, the social ethicist is in conversation, but those are what has, I think, categorized my own experience as a volunteer in government, which is precisely to link the three comments, um, the, three, the three remarks, which is dialogue and data. Dialogue is the commitment to be in relationship, to, to create that to create that face-to-face, -to, -face, to create that, the, the, the intimacy necessary to, to hold one another accountable, right? To be account, I am accountable to you, and we are accountable to one another. And data is, of course, our accountability to the truth. And both of those things I, I hear in, in, every, in every remark today. And I think that's what we can bring, whether we come from the religious studies side, or we come from the ethics side, or we come from the theology side. That's where we, that's where we intersect. That's where the intersection of justice is. And I will say that in my work, promoting something as technical or esoteric as innovation, right, in government, Supervisor Ridley Thomas, two years ago, you said to me in a passing remark, but it was not passing for me, Equity is efficiency. Equity is efficiency. If we can't, we can't innovate effectively unless we are innovating with people, for people, in a fair way, in a just way, and in a true way that is supported by not only the relationships but the data. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down, but I'm going to frame our, our questions. I think that one of the... The first questions that I'd like to ask, um, and maybe we'll just stay with this theme of religious studies graduate students moving into politics and government, um, is what advice you would offer to them? Um, we, we heard a little bit from, um, from Mayor Jaffer about her experience coming out of the academy into government, but Supervisor Ridley Thomas, you've actually engaged religious studies grads in, in your work. Um, and uh, Congresswoman Capps, you've, you've been in, in the encounter for many, many years. What advice would you give to graduate students who are thinking about this path? Just do it. <laughs> uh, I would say that uh, start very local. Uh, that's the most likely place where you can make inroads, and there are they, people are often looking for candidates. Uh, I, I was speaking before the panel started about how I was actually campaigning for someone who was running for Congress, and I was approached to run for office in my local township because no Democrats had run for four years. The Republican incumbents had been running unopposed, and it wasn't because there wasn't the potential to win. It just wasn't, there weren't candidates and the local party had fallen apart. And I think that that's the case in a lot of places. So I would suggest getting involved locally, volunteering for boards and commissions, uh, volunteering for other people's campaigns. That will just 
let people know that you're around. And everyone's looking for hardworking, smart people. And Shauna, you're a good example because that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> um, I think um, if you're contemplating uh, entering into the public square, I would just encourage uh, not being reluctant to insert moral discourse in one's advocacy. Mm -hmm. I think there's a place for it, and I think current public debate is bereft of moral content. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that we need to preach or proselytize or evangelize, but I do mean that uh, we ought to have some level of moral rectitude in the discourse of the day. Otherwise, what finally are we doing? I found that to be the case around homelessness uh, initially. And it was more vacuous than I would have preferred. The language of uh, civic consciousness. Uh, um, almost uh, felt a little bit more like civil religion. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do a little better than that without being chauvinistic. And while I say that, I think this notion of intersectionality is hugely important. So you make reference, uh, Sean, to uh, those who are higher. First of all, I try to hire uh, everybody who's smarter than I am and that helps a lot and so you make reference to Nicole and her background and divinity but then there's Dakshika uh, who has a background in urban planning and then there's uh, Ibert who um, has a background in political science and law, Dashika in literature and English. Um, so, Nicole from Harvard, Dashika from MIT, and Ibert from Michigan by way of Morehouse. Don't forget Morehouse. Morehouse animates the nation with thought leaders who share Ibert's demographic. And so I think we should be really intent on pulling together people to work together who otherwise wouldn't have these experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, and we ought to aim them in a fashion that speaks to the public good, the common good, uh, in ways that perhaps they wouldn't experience otherwise. That's certainly my experience. And when you're elected, you get tossed into an arena with people who you may not know or like. Shall I say that again? <laughs> and you're obliged to work it out. You've got to count to three in my case, and uh, kind of, I mean, caps, you have to count to a majority in the context of Congress and make it happen and get mm -hmm. the Democratic caucus moving. Uh, 
about a mayor, you don't have to count anymore because you've just taken over the whole thing. <laughs> it's all done. You just need to show up and say, let's vote. <laughs> um, and so I think this is a wonderful laboratory. It's the difference between the academy and the laboratory. This is the laboratory. We call it the public square. And you've got the land. Pastor Harshaw and I were uh, long-time colleagues and so forth. And, and he was talking about a course and the philosophical discourse that he engaged in. Uh, I think it was at Claremont. He said, you know, all that airplane talk that they engaged in. But you've got to land the plane when you are accountable to people for the improvement of the quality of their lives. So we have some folks in the room, I imagine, who are in the classroom, who are teaching in the classroom, right? And let's talk about landing the plane. My teacher, Wade Clark Roof, my um, late teacher, we'll be speaking about him tomorrow, um, my teacher, Mark Jurgensmeyer, uh, who's speaking later this afternoon. I'm just giving Santa Barbara grads, uh, uh, Santa Barbara folks, but my Columbia professor, Randy Balmer. These are folks who have modeled um, landing the plane. They bring what's happening in the classroom into the world, thinking back 24 years uh, when we were talking about how to prevent another Waco, right? When, when the, the, in, the interaction between the academy and, the, and public life was saying to government, look, if you'd only listened to us, lives could have been saved. Fast forward 25 years, it's not Homelessness is a crisis of, of a scale. It is ongoing. It is, um, it is persistent. Healthcare is a crisis. The, the insecurity crisis, whether you feel insecure in your relationships with your neighbors, which is, I think, what Mayor Jaffer was referring to, or insecure whether you can pay your rent or, or pay your doctor. What do the teachers need to know? If we're saying now to students, go do it, what would you like to see, how would you like to see graduate education changed? What preparation do you want to see given to graduates? What do you wish you had been taught? You're the most recent. Well, I mean, I think this is an issue that we've been discussing, which is the value of anything not in the traditional not a traditional academic role. Um, and, you know, finding value in service that we can do to our communities that isn't just primarily research and, uh, and teaching, but also uh, serving in elected office. Uh, I've found that people are very supportive, mm -hmm. but I do wonder about what people think about it. And I'm a postdoc, so I, I'm applying for academic jobs. and. You know, do, will people think I'm weird because we're not supposed to be interested in anything except our research? Uh, so I think there's like a culture issue. And then also, you know, taking responsibility. Uh, I mentioned in my remarks that, I think, um, <laughs> that uh, we as scholars have had the privilege of a lot of, of, of significant amount of education and we have skills that would be of service to our broader communities. And so it's almost depriving society of that if we don't 
take up the responsibility to be the ones who have yeah. that, who are trying to provide moral leadership and, mm -hmm. and solve really thorny issues that are life and death issues for people. Mm -hmm. So how do we, and I'm not to, not to devalue those who don't want to do that, but how do we make space for both of those things? I'm not sure how to do it, um, but I think more options of fellowships and opportunities. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to think. Most people did think it was quite weird when I did the Emerge program as a PhD student. Uh, and they said to me, and this was in 2014, so they said to me at that time, you know, well, you're in academia, why would you want to get involved in politics? It's so uh -huh. dirty and messy. And uh -huh. so I had to explain to them that of the elected officials that I'd met, most of them were fine people and they were trying to do the best that they could. And if we have that cynicism, then our society is only gonna go down. Because if, if we think only the worst people should go into politics, then only the worst people will go into politics. And we might be seeing a little bit of evidence of that. Uh -huh. um, but we, we need to see it as an honorable track and to support in any way that we can those who have it in them to give it a try. May I just refer back uh, to, um, well, it's the classical town gown. Uh -huh relationship, mm -hmm. isn't it? And the Ivy League, or well, not Ivy, well, but yes, Ivy-covered yeah. tower mm -hmm. on the hill, mm -hmm. uh, d separate from the plebeians mm -hmm. <laughs> down below. Uh, as a contrast, um, and I, I guess it would be an example of first-person narrative that my husband used as an academic in the height of the uh, crisis, the, chasm, which was the Vietnam War, he um, brought the war into the classroom in the form of the warriors who um, didn't choose to go fight. They were drafted and came back and were spit upon. Mm -hmm. And uh, hiding in the hills above our community, and he taught a course that no department wanted, but it was on the war in Vietnam and its effect on the American culture. Yeah. And he t invited the veterans to teach the course. They came and told their story of what it, was be what it was like to be an 18 year old and drafted. And the next day you're over in Southeast Asia and coming home. And for many of those veterans, the class was the first time they had ever told anyone, even their family members, of what that did to them. So um, you, it's not a, a wall between the two. We've no. got to make the interchange one to the other more seamless. I share that point of view, and I think Madam Mayor, you referred to it as, um, in some instances, people are a little cynical yeah. about um, public life and those who occupy the space. And, and I would hasten to add, sometimes not without good reason. Um, but before you get to cynicism, I think I view a level of elitism that um, envelops the uh, 
Academy, and it is as if this is um, somehow beneath what academics should do, beneath what people with certain kind of training should do, and um, I wish to reject that out of hand and offer uh, a 30-year example of uh, very fulfilling, very rewarding um, uh, experiences um, that has an effect, made a qualitative difference in the life of communities, building hospitals, building rail lines, mm -hmm. building affordable housing, and building empowerment in communities, and causing people to find purpose, and learning then how to demystify government such that it works for the good of people. I submit that as worthy of my time, my talents, and my training. Um, and um, there's a whole lot of places to find that. And I would think the public space would benefit more uh, from people with uh, training that's similar to that which we are speaking to. Not that we are morally superior, but the analytical tools that we bring to bear happen to be different. I deal with largely those in the uh, profession of law. Uh, they often think different. We don't think uh, in terms of ethical discourse from a legal perspective. We tend to think about it in theological or philosophical terms, which does not preclude legal analysis, but it doesn't allow the juridical to monopolize, monopolize the conversation. And so when we had um, in Los Angeles this huge crisis with jails, jail beatings and um, people's constitutional, uh, civil, and human rights being violated. Uh, major uh, convening that resulted in some significant changes in the county of Los Angeles, uh, the largest jail system in the nation. Then um, uh, populated by jurists of consequence, uh, Every single one of the uh, seven happened to be trained in legal matters, with the exception of the individual that I appointed. I appointed a pastor who happened to be uh, trained with the doctorate in ministry and theology at Claremont. His name is Cecil L. Chip Murray. Why? Because I knew that different from the advocacy in the courtrooms, that those lawyers had, he visited families who were suffering as a result of uh, the inhumane treatment to which their family members had been uh, subjected. He buried uh, those who had been victims of police violence. Do you follow me? In other words, it brings a different sensibility to the conversation based on his professional training as well as his academic training. And it seems to me that makes a huge difference. And I can cite examples of how that works in various uh, endeavors in the public space. In technology, you can apply that. I was yesterday or the day before um, at Google. Uh, 
working on artificial intelligence. It was a throwback to uh, the late 70s and early, 90, uh, early 80s when I was in uh, graduate school studying issues related to eugenics and cloning and a whole range of things, a, a serious throwback. But the ethics person they brought to bear was an engineer. And he talked about it from that vantage point, and he did a good job. But if he had been trained like the person's here, uh, a different set of insights would have been brought to bear uh, in a meaningful and significant way. What am I suggesting then? Google could use um, uh, someone who's trained in social ethics as, his, as its ethics officer. The campaign over which we uh, discussed the issue of civilian review doesn't always have to have a lawyer uh, it can be someone who's trained similarly. We bring value to the equation. Now, if it's about uh, going to court, don't send a social ethics. Get a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, that reminds me of a, pl a, a planning conversation. Uh, they finally released the results, if folks remember, that, that Uber, an automate, an automate, um an a, a, a autonomous vehicle um, hit a pedestrian in Arizona, right? Well, it turns out that um, that vehicle was not designed to see pedestrians outside of a crosswalk, okay? I mean, let's look at that in social ethics terms, right? We're, we're assuming that people only behave within the lines. I don't know about any of you, but... But we don't. That's not humanity. And, and as, a, as a sociologist, as an ethnographer, as an anthropologist of religion, that's, that's what I bring to the table as someone who says, wait, this is not how people make meaning together. This is not how people have conversations. The hardest thing for me becoming a commissioner, and I'm curious whether others had this experience, was language. And I think it goes to your, I think it goes to your point about the law. Um, the, the precision of language, the fixed nature of language, and the assumption that we were supposed to adapt to what words meant as opposed to policies and procedures adapting to what pe how people lived, mm -hmm. that, was the hardest, that was the hardest bridge to cross. And I think we're beginning to see it now. I think we're seeing it in the county of L.A., um, that we're doing much more user-centered, human-centered design work, both in the programs and in the policies themselves. But we still have a long way to go, and we need more, we need more ethicists and ethnographers yeah. uh, and observers uh, to be part of those to be the part of those issues. Let's open it up to questions. Um, we have a mic here. If you wouldn't mind, I hate asking people to line up, but please line up. <laughs> uh, Mr. Moderator, let me just simply say, on the language front, at least this sort of training affords us to lay bare what our values are about, the values that are embedded in the policies that we promulgate. And the, and the conversation is also the example that you brought up, Supervisor, of that Martin Luther King, who is the epitome, uh, he went from marching with the garbage, uh, the garbage worker strike. He, we heard him preach at Battelle Chapel at Yale University when the students were going down 
to be freedom riders. He did both, and one enhanced the other. Yes, sir. So I have a question <clears throat> that I would value your response. I mean, I, it's a, it, and there's, so there's a question in here. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm going to start with are. the mantra of Walter Capps, that democracy is born and reborn in conversation. Wonderful. So, so society is a conversation. Absolutely. Sometimes those conversations become contested, bitter, Oppositional. Okay, now with that thought, I want to go to homelessness in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, Steve Lopez, yeah. who has, uh, it's on and on and on, mm -hmm. articles it's about called. homelessness. This was maybe a week or two ago. Right. It was all about talks. who's in charge. Yeah. Okay, now this is what I want to present. So who's in charge? Um, Conversations are certainly be between individuals, but in society, often it's social institutions that are having the conversations in and through the people who are representing the institutions. Mm -hmm. So now this is about a contested conversation or better public argument going on in Los Angeles. So clearly you have a responsibility, and part of it is the order and stability of society. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, in that order and stability is looking at every citizen of Los Angeles as equal. Now, um, okay, to make this conversation contested, I've got to get oppositional groups in here. So the other major institution that's really involved in this conversation is the market economy. Mm -hmm. and. And so, and what's interesting about, especially downtown Los Angeles, which is sort of the epicenter of homelessness, um, is um, economic growth going on. And I've had a couple instances where, I mean, because I sort of know the area a bit, uh, I met a friend at the uh, Nomad Hotel, which is, in our, and there's another hotel, I can't remember the name of it, sort of nearby. So. These, that's a prestigious hotel from Manhattan mm -hmm. that has, you know, got a yeah. represent yeah. a new hotel in Los Angeles. And what they've done is gone in and get old hotels and refurbish them, and they're beautiful, right down in the center of downtown Los Angeles. But it's wonderful because it's near the convention center, and when the big conferences are going on, you know, people, you know, stay in very nice places. But it's also the center of homelessness. Um, okay, so one of the contentious dimensions to this conversation is businesses like that, or restaurants, uh, and now there's like reaction and pushback. They're starting to like build obstacles on the street so you can't put your tent down because right. and so right. forth. Um, okay, so now that's. So we have two, government and the market economy. Now I'm gonna throw a third one in, the Catholic worker. Mm. Sixth and Gladys, yeah. the, the soup kitchen, yeah. right in the heart of the homeless yeah. center, okay. Um, now, and I'm picking them especially because they won't be nice. No. <laughs> right. 
And so I'm just thinking of past examples, like one was the shopping cart thing where the police started to take people's shopping yep. carts. Yep. Uh, and they would put all of their belongings in a, a, a box. And, and so then the Catholic worker went out and bought their own shopping carts. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can't take these because they're ours. Um, and, and, and they don't want to come down to City Hall and negotiate with you. They're standing over here saying, this is what Jesus did. Uh, and, and, and so what's driving them? You could say compassion, especially for the most least among us. Okay, all right, now, um, so who's in charge? So I'm saying, in a sense, I've got three institutions. Mm-hmm. Now here's my question. All right. If you could think of these three institutions sort of arguing this out, this sort of public argument. This is a point that the Catholic theologian John Courtney Murray made once, most important point, who was very interested in these kinds of issues. Um, For public argument to even begin, there has to be a consensus. You know, some point of agreement. No argument can proceed if the contending parties don't at least agree on this. Okay, my question is, Thinking of these three institutions, and that's to, to you all, and to thinking of these three institutions, but focus especially on homelessness, what would be the consensus that could begin a public conversation about homelessness in Los Angeles between the city council, between the market economy, and religious groups like the Catholic worker? Thank you. <laughs> Michael McGrath, I'm from the Episcopal Theological School at Claremont. Mm. <laughs> wow. And that, I teach social ethics. Right. And systematic theology. Okay, boom. <laughs> that is the question, right? Yeah. Well, it, first of all, is there a place for conversation between the parties? There, that's the starting point, isn't it? To find a, some kind of place for, for it to begin. Right. Yeah. Consensus building is dynamic. It is not um, afforded us from on high. It's a very human enterprise, the enterprise of consensus building. And, um, you know, the law in some ways reflects consensus. ethical language, as you well know, being the good Episcopalian that you are, uh, will appreciate that the law represents consensus, but it is the moral minimum around which consensus Mm -hmm. is built. And so the question is, can we build more than the minimum? And so that the descendants of Dorothy Day um, mm-hmm. 
and those who are the current market players, significantly real estate developers and restaurant tours, as well as those who occupy the public sector. Uh, there's a conversation of consequence that can take place, mm -hmm. and it centers around can we rid uh, these streets in Los Angeles of these unspeakable conditions, these uninhabitable places where uh, people who are human beings have been relegated. Can we do that? And then the question becomes, how? And that's when, uh, pardon me, uh, the opportunity to say it like it is, that's when all hell breaks loose. Oh, there you go, there you go. That's a more apt description, but I know Sorry. Harshaw would have called my wife if I had said that. Um, and so there is that, but it's happening right now, and there's struggle. But it's, you know, the, the market forces are not monolithic. Um, the public officials don't all agree on the same thing. So this, the dynamism of building consensus, but this is not about the, what we describe it as the paralysis of analysis. It is about how you move forward. It is about mm -hmm. progress, as you made reference to in the document. It's not about a council of perfection. It is essentially about moving things forward. In this business, this may not be the domain of the academy as I recall it there, there was a point of view that said, and is said today, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Absolutely. Got to land the plane. Let, let me try to give, we have another question, but let me try to give two quick answers to uh, thinking about, one, the supervisor earlier alluded to dividing by five when the homelessness crisis was ta first taken up, which implies two things that are both wrong. One is that government is the center of problem solving, and two, that equality as opposed to equity is the approach, right? It implies a centered, it implies centering on government and then dividing it all up like you just slice a pie. And I think there were two changes that, were, that, that have to be made for that conversation to move forward. One is to put the human being at the center. And that's something that social ethicists and you know, people like us can argue for. Because every single party in that conversation agrees that that person should not be suffering on that corner. For different reasons, but they will agree on that. And they probably will agree that that person should be sheltered. Right. So moving the human to the center of the equation. And the second thing is moving to an equity model that says we have to focus our resources and our attention on the people who are the most vulnerable and who need it most, which means that in this instance, with the, the person, that person and, and the community in which that person exists, rather than saying, oops, we divided by whatever the number is, um, 5, 15, however many, 
and we're sorry, we don't have enough resources. We have way too many resources over here, but not enough to help this. We need to move the resources to where the people are. So recentering and reimagining what equity means, I think, are the two steps forward to addressing the problem. There's also, I've always been frustrated. Why don't governments leverage more? Because for that hotel to build that beautiful thing that's going to make their pockets swell, why can't they be a part of the solution at the same time? Right, have to be. Jobs or before. And life and self-interest. Easier said than done. Yeah. We have about ten more minutes, I think, we're getting going. Well, first of all, I just I would like to start off by saying thank you, all three of you, for coming here today. Um, honestly, you all have incredibly inspiring stories, and I respect the civil service that you're doing for all of us um, very, very much. Um, I also really enjoyed the different ways in which all three of you talked about the power of talking with the moral voice. Um, and I think that both as scholars and as your individual spirituality comes through in the ways that you're speaking. And I, and I guess my question is just for each of you, um, everyone knows that as you get into politics, there is a toxicity that you deal with. There is adversity that you have to overcome. Yeah. Can you each give a quick story about the ways in which um, your own spirituality, and in the case of being a scholar, uh, maybe a bit of your scholarly knowledge, has empowered you to be able to take on toxicity and deal with it yourself, but also be able to turn that into something that's positive for the community? Oh, Casey Crosby? From? 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 Oh, um, from, uh, I'm at Scripps College right now. Um, uh -huh. I just graduated from Claremont School of Theology. And I was also director of a homeless shelter while I was um, in a good school, mm. so I have very much respect. You're yeah. a re an expert. Yeah. <laughs> I try. Claremont in the house. That's right. Yeah, we're on the room. I taught at the School of Theology, yeah. You jump in there. You're doing it as we speak. That's right. Well, I mean, there's one very, very common Muslim understanding that only God is perfect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I get frustrated that, you know, why, this, it, why do people do illogical things? Or, you know, if we could just work together on this issue, there's absolutely no reason why we can't solve it. I do sometimes fall back on that and say, then things would be perfect. If everything worked out perfectly, then what, where would God be in that? So I, I remind myself of that often. Uh, but to be honest, I'm, I am working through some very naughty, like, I have to disentangle this uh, issues with a lot of it. I think it's going back to the human. It's a lot of just people's personal issues more than policy. That's, I think, what's, what's interesting for me and what is different, I think, to some degree from academia, where it is very idea-centric and our disagreement is in the realm of ideas for the most part, and I'm disagreeing with you because I truly believe something different. We don't have a lot of patience for disingenuous speech in academia, or at least that's our value that we don't. But in politics, that you do find a lot more disingenuous types of uh, behaviors, and so I'm myself trying to work 
through that, but I also, sometimes I tell myself, like, it's good that I'm doing this at the local level, because I can't imagine those people who just go in as Congress people and suddenly they have to deal with very, very uh, intense situations. And I remember listening to an interview of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and, and they were asking her what it was like to be a Congresswoman, and she said, well, it's kind of like working anywhere else. There's that person on the fourth floor who you don't like, <laughs> and you want to avoid them. Exactly. Um, right. So I think exactly. that there, there, is a, there is something about just human psychology and, and getting to the heart of what is troubling people that I'm still working on learning, but I think that that's, that's definitely a skill that's important. <laughs> Building bridges it sounds easier said than done. But it, um, just getting along with people across the aisle, um, being friends over prayer or over um, a, an excursion, a, a, a journey together, a traveling somewhere, uh, you find out things that you have in common and you're not going to talk about politics because you would get off track there. But common ground is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is there. That's somewhere in all of these mm -hmm. dilemmas. Yeah. And sometimes I think we, well, it's, too, it's so easy for us to think we know already ahead of time and we don't need to listen to the other person. Mm -hmm. Listening is a very hard art, mm -hmm. very difficult to really hear the other saying. Then my other comment, because I'm not an expert on homelessness at all, but I believe it's probably a, a pile of things together. It's addiction, it's illness, it's loneliness, it's isolation. Um, these are tough. And they, there's no one size fits all. You just can't. Except nurses. And you built a bipartisan nursing caucus, didn't I you? I did. But yeah. it crossed I didn't aisle. do it myself. I, you know what gave it the support? I would come back from a break, and some of my colleagues had had a triple bypass during the break, and they said, you know, the doctors were fine, but those nurses, they saved my life. <laughs> That's right. Some, somebody was smart in the hospital. So in addition to the list of contributing factors that you suggest, uh, Madam Congresswoman, um, add economic insecurity. Um, uh, that's a significant driver, oh, the unprecedented yeah. number of evictions, the, uh, the lack of affordable housing. These are factors of consequences. Let me just simply say on the toxicity front, front yes, it's true, toxic environments, uh, and some even say it's radioactive in some respect, and the, the radioactivity is largely, in my view, attributable to partisanship. Um, I have in my career done much better in nonpartisan environments. I don't particularly like uh, being dictated to as to who I can talk to and who I can't, uh, irrespective of whether they have a D, an R, or I attached to their name. Um, and so uh, we uh, push a certain set of values, democratic values, small d. Uh, but things do get challenging, and you can come under attack, uh, unearned in, in many instances, and you just have to be able to stand. What do I do to power through it? Um, I do uh, a few things. I uh, go to 
um, uh, great preachers. Uh, I listened to uh, Gardner Taylor, uh, the Dean of American Preachers. I listened to um, Jermaine Hawkins and said, I never lost my praise. Uh, I sponsor an event that, that celebrates a cultural icon by the name of Aretha Franklin, let people listen to Amazing Grace that was recorded in 1972 on 81st and Broadway, right in the heart of South Central LA and bless the whole world. That's what I do to recenter myself. Uh, all right now, Dumas, by now you should be shouting, Doc. I'm trying to say something to you. So that's, so that's kind of what some of us do to just the power our way through, and I can tell you, uh, when this meeting is over, I'm going to turn that music on and see how you take it in. There you go. We have to wrap, and I'm going to turn it back over to uh, to my colleague Sarah. But I I just want to say on that note, um, persist, um, have the courage of your of who you are and what you believe. Sometimes, what it takes. I've, we've all been attacked on social media. I think. Um, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to not respond, is just to sit and take it and listen and try to see what, what kind of pain that person is in who's coming after you and try to imagine how to, how to address it. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes they're wrong. Frequently they're wrong. But there's something there. And I just, in the spirit of persistence, want to thank my colleagues here and the AAR. Um, yeah. We've had... 25 years of conversation about public policy that have grown in um, complexity and maturity uh, as the AAR has developed, and I know that people will be continuing to listen to this conversation for many years to come. Um, it's been really great to see this unfold here and with these three individual leaders um, bringing their full selves to the conversation, and so thank you. It's uh, it's been wonderful to learn from you today. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, on behalf of the audience and anyone listening via SoundCloud or other future podcasts, I'd like to again extend thanks to the esteemed uh, panelists as well as Dr. Sean Landris um, in learning about how we can leverage religious studies to work in public spaces for, for the greater good. We've learned a lot today, so thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. All right.